in adolescence, you know, this is a, this is a critical development time, right? I mean, our brains are just pruning everything out. And so this is whether you have, whether you're differently wired or have a, you know, diagnosis, it doesn't matter. You're going to struggle with those executive functionings during adolescence, period. Welcome to Tilled Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today's episode features a conversation with the fabulous Julie George. Julie is a behavior and educational consultant who provides therapy to twice exceptional and autistic adolescents. She focuses on the areas of social skills, executive functioning, and emotional regulation. But this episode is specifically about executive function, which Julie will fully explain in our conversation. But for now, let me just say that if you're not clued into the importance of the role of executive functioning in your child's world, this interview is going to rock your socks. I'm super excited to share Julie with you because as you'll hear, she's incredibly knowledgeable about differently wired kids. She's very generous with her insight and shares a ton about what's really going on in our kids' brains, as well as what we as parents can do to support them in developing their executive functioning skills. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Julie, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. You're one of my go-to people. And quickly to give listeners some background on who you are and the experience that you have working with differently wired kids, I know that you have a BA in special education and an MA in elementary education, and also that you're a board certified behavioral analyst and an ABA therapist. But beyond that, can you kind of describe for us briefly, what kind of work do you do and you know, what your areas of specialization are? Yeah. So I currently have a private practice in Seattle and I see kids who are struggling with social skills, executive functioning skills, and emotion regulation. Um, And my ages are about 10 up into high school. Um, I don't generally see, I don't generally work with young adults at this point in time. And the kids kind of range. It started off as I worked with a lot of kids that had um, autism, but that's morphed into I have kids that are twice exceptional. So I get a lot of the gifted and, you know, paired with autism or kids that have just ADHD or just some kids that don't have a diagnosis at all, but they just are struggling with one of those areas and they come in and and they seek out uh, therapy for that. So those are kind of the main. And then I also um, tend to work with girls on the spectrum as well is kind of my other area of interest. My twice exceptional kids and my girls are kind of my two main areas of interest, the the things that I really enjoy doing in my practice. Oh, interesting. I I guess I knew that you worked with girls, but you know, there, there is a prevalence, especially for the autism spectrum of boys, it seems to be more common. The studies have shown that it's much more common in boys than girls. But I have been reading lately that it shows up differently in girls as well. And I'm curious, just before we get into our conversation, on executive functioning. What is it about working with girls that is unique? So a girls are, I mean, they, it's so interesting because when I think about autism spectrum, you know, you kind of have the autism and it's a spectrum, but twice exceptional is this subset. Like when you get kids that have autism and twice exceptional, they're kind of their own little group and they're very different. You know, it's different in terms of how you work with them and girls subset out differently too. And one of the main ways that they subset out is that they do, their autism looks different. And, and for me, most of the girls I work with are also twice exceptional too. And so they don't present 
present the same way that we see boys present. You wouldn't necessarily pick up that they have autism. They are, um, one of the big differences between the boys and girls is the girls are socially curious. And that's the trait that we look for in boys is that we're like, oh, they're doing their own thing and they're by themselves and they're not making friendships. Well, our girls aren't like that. They do want to make friendships. They are socially curious. They are initiating those relationships. They might not be successful at that. Um, Some of my girls tend to be with that twice exceptional, you know, they tend to, I almost feel like the way I describe it is it's almost like autism takes the male and female personality traits that everyone has and just exasperates them, right? And just heightens them a little bit. So that's what I see in my girls, girls that can be really bossy and demanding and say whatever they think. And, you know, um, they're kind of know-it-alls and you have all of those things that come out. And so they tend to be looked at from a behavioral lens. They tend to be looked at as kids that are just difficult or are behavioral as opposed to seeing where the autism is showing up and that that's actually a social deficit. And while they might be interested in social relationships, they still aren't understanding the social environment and the social rules enough to be successful. So then they're not having those successful interactions all the time. And it's really fun what I like about my girls the most because I've st- I've started a- with a lot of them when they were eight or nine because they have a very strong, I don't care, I'm doing it my way, uh, as a lot of kids on the spectrum do. Um, but it's been fun to really watch them um, hit middle school. And that change is really profound for them. They, that the internal motivation kicks in in a really nice way. Cause all of a sudden they might have a boy that they like, right. Or they might meet some girls that they like, and they have this real nice desire to start changing their behavior because they see something that they want that might benefit them. Right. And so it's been a lot of nice introspection too, of like, Hey, how, how can I be nice now when I've been this kid that's always been this way all these years in elementary school? Like, won't people think that's weird if all of a sudden I'm being nice? And it's like, no, they, that's actually a good thing. Middle school's a, middle school's a great time to change who you are. <laughs> it's like, everybody's doing that. So, so yeah, so it's really, it's really different. I feel like they're really, um, misunderstood. I feel like I work with a lot of teams trying to get them to understand girls and how, where the deficits are, even though they don't appear the same way as boys. I love that. Or what we traditionally think of as autism, right? I mean, that's the mm-hmm. part everyone has in their mind what autism is and it's not kids stimming in the corner anymore, right? And so Right, so. right. Not rain man. Yeah. Um yeah, I I love that. And now I'm already thinking we need to have you back to talk about girls and you know, as you know that's a girl's interest is is, is something I've spent years doing with my writing specifically and and just a little side note for listeners I interviewed you for my book for young women in their shoes, which was about career development and exploration for teen girls. So anyway, a little side note, if people want to know more about behind the scenes of Julie's work, you can check that out. I'll leave the the link in the show notes. But that's very cool. I love that. So interesting, the work you're doing with girls. But before we dive into the content for today's show, I just thought I'd briefly share how you and I met because it's a nice segue. And what I remember is that I went to this talk at the University of Washington that was being hosted by the UW Autism Center. And this was, it has to have been several years before I had any formal diagnoses for Asher. Um, but someone had told me about this talk. And I think the focus might have been flexibility or emotional regulation. And I was just kind of looking for any kind of insight I could find. So I went. And you were one of the presenters. And I remember being blown away by what you were sharing and the stories you were sharing about these kids you'd work with who used to be 
incredibly inflexible and, you know, for lack of a better word, explosive. And that after, you know, working with you and kind of the methodology that you were using, they were starting to be able to catch themselves before the explosions occurred and calm themselves and do it on their own. And I was like, sign me up. Like, how do I, how do I connect with this woman? And that it wasn't until a few years later when we did get a formal diagnosis of Asperger's and ADHD through the University of Washington. And the woman there who did the assessment, I remember very clearly, you know, she's kind of going over everything with us in this, you know, very, well, I remember it as a bleak room. I was not in a good space, but it's very, very, well, they're very <laughs> bleak rooms uh, there, yes. <laughs> but I remember she said, if there's one thing I would put my energy into right now, it would be on supporting Asher's executive functioning development. And and I, that's a, ultimately, I think she gave us your name. That's how we ended up connecting with you. And at the time, I didn't know what executive functioning was. I, I knew we wanted it. I knew we wanted to work on it, but I didn't get what it meant. So could you explain to us, you know, what, what is executive functioning? Yeah. So it's so fascinating because I feel like executive functioning has really come up a lot, say in the last probably 10 years. I remember when I moved up here um, and started teaching middle school, and that was my first introduction to executive functioning. And not that anyone told me what it was. It just was, I had all these middle school kids who were leaving their stuff everywhere and couldn't turn in assignment. Like I was seeing this theme. I was like, well, something's going on. I need a class period a day where we can address this stuff that's happening. Um, but executive functionings are basically brain-based skills required to effectively execute and perform tasks and solve problems, right? I mean, that's essentially what it is. It helps to, you know, these processes that help us to regulate our behavior, to help us set goals, um, to be able to meet those goals, to balance the demands and our desires and wants and needs and have to. So it's all of those kind of skills. It's all of your, you know, um, working memory, um, emotional control, response inhibition, being able to organize our time management, um, our, you know, planning and prioritization, sustaining attention, being able to start a task, right? So all of those, I mean, and we, everything, we, everything, and we use them every day, all the time, right? I mean, it's like, you can't get through a day without using an executive function skills. And generally with our differently wired kids, and all everybody, everybody's got skills, executive functioning skills that are real, they have strengths in and then other areas where there's weakness, right? So they can't, they tend to be divided up. I mean, I don't, I don't normally see a kid that's like, in all, there's 11 kind of executive functioning skills. I don't see a kid that comes in with like all 11 wiped out. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. I've got some that I'm doing really well. And I've got others that are more challenging for me. So it sounds like this is something really that every kid could use work on, not just atypical kids. This is something that everyone could use some development in then? Yes. And so where we historically see this, I mean, where this really pops up. So executive functioning skills actually start as as young as six to 12 months. I mean, our emotional control and our flexibility, our emotional control and our attention develop at six six to 12 months, our flexibility develop between 12 and 24 months. So these are skills that are being developed over time. Um, Those higher ones like task initiation and organization and time management, they start in preschool and go through elementary. But where we see executive functioning really come into play 
um, you'll see it, I think, I, I see, I tend to see it starting in third and fourth grade with kids who are differently wired. Like you, you'll start to see some issues pop up and generally for kids that are in schools, teachers will say, oh, everybody's going through this right now. Um, it's fine. Um, but what happens is in, in adolescence, you know, this is a, this is a critical development time, right? I mean, our brains are just pruning everything out. And so this is whether you have, whether you're differently wired or have a, you know, diagnosis, it doesn't matter. You're going to struggle with those executive functionings during adolescence period, because that's just what the brain's doing at that time and needing time to kind of work on that. And so some kids are better at initiating that and getting it started. And some kids need, I always like to think about executive functioning, like we have to coach them, right? We're a facilitator or a coach. That's really our role. That should be the role of a parent. That's definitely the role I play. Um, I don't come in and say, you have to do this, this, and this. It's more about bringing some awareness around what's going on and getting the kids to recognize their strengths and then also where are their weaknesses and what can they be doing differently um, and how do they... It's a nice shift time because I feel like in elementary school as adults and specifically parents, you spend a lot of time prompting kids and doing things for kids and thinking about, you know, I mean, starting in as infants, like a mom has her diaper bag and you're thinking about you what you put in the diaper bag is like everything that's gone wrong in your past outings, right? You put it in and you're like, okay, I've got everything I think I possibly need, you know, and you're always thinking four steps ahead. And so we, you t- we tend to do that as adults for kids. And then what we don't realize is that sometimes what we don't recognize is, are these kids shifting and picking that up for themselves? And a lot of times they're not. And so it's middle school that really hits parents because all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, they're not they're really struggling, right? Because that shift hasn't happened. And so I'm like, I'll say to parents, you know, like, let's say a kid forgets to take his homework to school, right? And so parents will come in and it's like, okay, here's a system we're going to put in place. And when you go through the checklist of doing their homework at night, they need to say their checklist. You can't be prompting the checklist. Because if you're saying the checklist, then you're working on your working memory and not their working memory, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Really what we want to have happen is it's the kid's working memory. And so, but I think for parents, we put a lot of pressure, right? Parents put a lot of pressure on themselves to like make sure their kid shows up and has their homework turned in and, you know, and doesn't kind of allow a little bit of that. I'm going to back off. What kind of routine can we put in place for the child so that they get the cue from their environment or that routine or that visual that helps prompt them to go, oh, yeah, I need to pay attention to this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Because the example I always use for parents is this, because I think it's a good one. When I'm driving my car, I'm paying attention to everything. I know exactly what street I'm on. I'm paying attention to all the landmarks, right? I know where we're going. But if I'm the passenger in the car um, and the person driving is like, hey, do you remember what road we turn on? I'm going to be like, eh, not really, because I'm not really paying attention. Because I, di- I didn't turn on the part of my brain that said, pay attention to this. Because mm-hmm. I said to myself, somebody else has it. Right. And that's what our, that's what our kids do. Hmm. Interesting. Somebody else has it. You know, somebody else is going to remind me to do that. So I'm not going to file it the same way in my brain yep. that I need to. Yeah, Uh, it's interesting. And just I'm trying to do that even in my day to day life with Asher. Now, you know, I'm homeschooling him, we spend a lot of time together, we're running errands together all the time. Yesterday, we had to go to the slacher, which is the, um, the butcher. And we, we walked outside the apartment. And I was like, so where's the butcher anyway? And he's like, I think it like, you know, he's been there before with me many times. And I'm like, okay, take me there. 
And I just let him kind of lead me. I wanted to know, is he paying attention? Because I think I definitely tend to just I grab his hand and make sure we safely get across the street. Like I'm in charge and I'm trying to do more of that, you know, not be not let him just be the passenger. And and what you said also reminded me of have you uh, read or heard about Jessica Leahy's book, The Gift of Failure? No, I haven't. Oh, that sounds amazing. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. And, you know, it's really about how important it is for our kids to fail, how important it is for our kids to not have us, you know, making sure that they bring their homework, even if it means not bringing in the homework is going to result in a failed grade or something that, you know, that is such a critical part of their development that they kind of are allowed to fail in those situations and that we're not there to rescue them. So when you're talking about this, just with the homework example with kids in middle school and stuff, I'm just curious to know your thoughts. When when I, um, I've i listened to interviews with Jessica and, and checked out her book, and I think her content is amazing. And as a parent of a twice exceptional kid, I'm often wondering, yes, and where's the balance for me? You know, how can I, where do I support and where do I kind of let go? Because I, I think it's, it's different because these kids are often on a different timeline. They're on a different timeline. And I think the other really important thing with gifted kiddos our twice exceptional kiddos is that one of their big traits is a deep desire for perfectionism, right? So those Mm -hmm. failures can really set them off course. So I do think it's kind of a balancing act, right? Because you do want them to have these moments where they're kind of figuring this out, but you also don't want to get set into place. Now I can't ever do it. I'm not going to try again. (laughs) You know, you don't want to get that Mm -hmm. in place either, which I know you do some stuff around mindset as well, which is the other, I love to use um, the book mindset and thinking about talking about effort and really putting our um, attention and our feedback around that. But when it comes to executive functioning skills, I mean, we do provide support. So it's not that we don't do that. And you want to make sure that you don't pull the support too soon because kids will stumble and fall. And so for for the homework example, because this just actually came up in our house, it was like, you know, we, we have a kiddos that go between two houses and have to get homework turned in. And so, you know, and homework's not getting to our house. Well, that's not a parent's, you know, I don't feel like that's necessarily mom's responsibility to make sure that happens. How do we get a system set up? So let's do a folder system. And aside, you know, and lots of parents will do folders and they'll say, oh, folders don't work. Well, but there's a routine that goes around the folder, right? We want to make a routine in place so that no matter where the kid is at, you know, the table, the room they're in, the time of day, none of those variables matter. What matters is the routine, is the visual checklist and the folder and the steps we're teaching to remind, oh, this is my routine, right? And I'm going to get in the habit of filing my homework in this folder every single time. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties, Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about though is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. 
They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. For instance, you know, this kiddo, he can do his homework fine on the daily homework. Where he struggles is the reading log that is turned in at the end of the week. And that's Mm -hmm. because that doesn't have a place, right? That gets pulled out. It gets set on the desk in the bedroom. And then somebody has to remember to get it back into the backpack. There's not a routine of putting it into the folder and making sure that it always stays in the folder and the folder is always in the backpack. And then that way... You, whenever he's doing it, he it's always there. He doesn't have to then try to remember on Thursday, you know, evening to get it back into the backpack because it's always there. So for something like that, you know, we're going to do, I always feel like there's three steps to executive function. I mean, four really. The first step is identifying, you know, what is it, the skill that we need to work on? But then you want to create a routine. I mean, we have people that have really great executive functioning skills have strong routines. That's the correlation, right? It's like, it's not that my memory is any better than anybody else's memory, but I put such strong routines in place in my life that then prompt me to remember how to do things. And I have a lot of visual supports in place. I'm a very visual person and that's what keeps me on track. And so figuring out what that skill is and creating the routine around that and then making it visual for the kid and providing that support, checking in on that until the kid has that down enough that we see enough success that we can pull back, right? Because you do want to provide that support, but you also want to pull back as well and go, okay, you've got this down. You've had, you know, five successful nights of getting this into your backpack and keeping this routine. I'm going to put that a little bit more on you now. And this is going to be something you're in charge of. And I'm not going to check in daily anymore. I'm going to check in maybe once a week and see how you're doing. And so I like to start with those first two steps. And then my third step that can be really really critical 
is motivation. So what is that reinforcement? What is that motivation? Because we have to make sure that the motivation, like if you were looking at a visual of two hills, that the motivation hill is higher than the task hill. Because <laughs> if the mm-hmm. task hill is higher than the motivation hill, then we have a lot of problems. Kids are going to have a real difficult time engaging in that. Some kids just really need the routine created for them and the visual support, and they can really take off. For kids that don't take off as much, I find that that motivation piece is really critical. So then what are they earning to get through this? You know, Because at some younger ages, they don't make that same correlation, right? They don't understand how important these executive functioning skills are for later on in life at at that same level that I start to see in my teens and my high school kids. So Mm -hmm. so when they're younger, we will kind of dangle that carrot. Here's, you know, and I like to set it up in a system of we all work to then engage in our fun stuff, right? And so, you know, hey, if you want to play video games, here's your job is to be a student. And part of being a student and part of living in our house is maintaining these certain skills, right? And as you do those, Mm -hmm. then you get access to the fun things that you want to do because that's how it's going to work as you're an adult, being able to balance those. And no one comes before the other because a lot of times, our kids are very impulsive, right? They tend to be like, I want this right now. And I can't put off pleasure to get through a task first. And that's an important skill. How do I get through this? And then know I'm going to access something fun later and try to, you know, squash that I need to do the fun stuff thing right now. And so I tend to do the fun thing over my work and put off my work and not do it. And I think one of the things I have a a teen that I'm working with and I, his mom's so great about it because it's, you know, he is really, you know, into video games and they let him have an Xbox in his room. And she said, she's like, I could easily monitor it. I mean, I could easily be like, nope, we're taking it away and you're not having access to that. She's like, but in four years, he's going to be 19 and someday he's going to live on his own. And so when does he learn how to monitor his, his video game playing, (laughs) you know? And I thought, oh, that's so true. And so we have to go through the bumps of it. Right. And the bumps are, He's late for school because he started playing video games and he didn't keep track of time. And so then he comes in and we have to sit down and have a conversation. And I have to get him to think about what what are the solutions to this problem? Have him identify some solutions, go try them out. He comes back in and, you know, tells me how it went, right? And so that's the, the piece too, is not being like, here's the solution, but allowing them to come up with it and saying, okay, let's try that out. Even though in our minds, we might be like, that is not going to work. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's what when you were talking about the, the homework packet, I, I that was one of my questions. Is this something that you sat you sit down with the child and work on it together? Or are you creating the plan it for them? It depends on age. So when they're a little bit younger, I might create the mm-hmm. plan. But definitely by the time they get to fifth and sixth grade, they are we are doing it together. I have found, and this is just my philosophy about it, my brain is wired differently than their brain. And so I might see organization in a certain way that their brain is never going to see it that way. And so then it will never be beneficial to them for me to give them my system or the ways that it makes sense to me. It really has to make sense to them. And a lot of our differently wired and our twice exceptional kiddos have some very strong thoughts and feelings about how things should go. And they know how it goes, even though they've never had this experience, Mm -hmm. right? And so it is important to be like, let's try it. Let's do that, you know? And these are really the years. I mean, 
late elementary school and middle school are your practice years. You know, things don't count the same way that they do in high school. By high school, we have to get it a little bit more under control. And so, but the middle school years and late elementary, lots of flexibility to be like, okay, let's see how that works. And then it's nice because then they come back and they're like, oh, that didn't really work. (laughs) Oh, okay. Right. Let's talk about some other options, right? And it helps with problem solving because then we can go through, here's three different ways we can look at this problem. What what way look makes most sense to you? Um, And it helps them to be thinking about it because a lot of times these kids only have their one way they think about it. They don't right. step back and look at it in different layers. And so that's that's a great skill to work on. Let's talk about different solutions. You know, that mm-hmm. really helps with our flexibility. It really helps with our emotion regulation <laughs> at the end of the and day. Self-knowledge. self-knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of how do I operate? And it helps them to learn how they operate too, right? What are their, what are those areas of weakness and what, how does that come up and how do they, how do they do that? Because what I find when I've worked with adults um, that can be really disheartening is that they'll stay, you know, it's like if we don't do intervention, then I have my one way I solve this problem. And so then I go to solve the problem this way. It doesn't work. I end up feeling bad about myself and feeling like I can't do things. And then the next time a problem comes up, I don't have anything else. So I go back, you know, and so I just tell myself this time it's going to be different. I don't know how many 20 somethings have said that to me. It's just, I'm just going to do it different this time. It's like, mm-hmm. how are you going to do it different? So then they go and they use their same tools and they still don't have success, right? And so the feedback loop tends to stay negative if we're not coming in and doing a lot of coaching around what what are some other ways that we can do this? How can you mm-hmm. be successful? What are some of the consequences? I know, I mean, our twice exceptional kiddos are really unique this way because they're so strong academically that they're not building their executive functioning skills at the same level that we see elementary school kids because they can memorize the notes. They can memorize what they're supposed to do, right? So they're not needing all this practice that can be happening in schools. They don't have to do that, right? Yeah, they don't have to necessarily note-take the same way because of the way their brains work. And so it tends to hit them a little bit harder. And I actually, I find with my twice exceptional kiddos, it hits them harder come high school, not even middle school. Middle school, they're still able to pull it out. They're still able to take their 15 missing assignments and get them all done right before grades are due and they still get an <laughs> A, right? And so then their, their yeah. feedback is, this works. I'm still getting straight A's. I don't see any reason to do it differently. And so that's the other piece of it too, is you know really making sure when those opportunities hit, where it does make a difference that we're in there and really, really coaching. And I like the word coaching because it tends to keep it positive. It tends to really help them with what needs to happen and not telling them all the ways that they're doing it wrong because I don't Mm -hmm. think it's helpful for executive functioning skills. Right, right. So any other examples just in terms of what this might look like in twice exceptional or differently wired kids? Like where do those deficits really tend to show up, especially as we kind of transition from late elementary into the middle school years? Yeah. So it, I, you know, I definitely see it. And it's interesting because with, um, we think about kind of three main causes to tend to pop up executive functioning, which is, you know, ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, and traumatic brain injuries. And so, you know, your autism spectrum disorders, you're going to see a lot more of that flexibility, emotional control, metacognition come up a heavier, right? And our ADHD kids is that response, you know, inhibition, attention, time management, working memory. So I feel like that, you know, for me, when I kind of see thematically 
with kids is I, I find that most kids that have any kind of executive functioning issues, they also tend to have some sort of emotion regulation issues. They just go hand in hand. The kids that I worked with in middle school when I taught that had great executive functioning were not my high emotion regulation kids. And so, so we see that, you know, that inability to be flexible pops up and, and that becomes, I feel like it comes a lot more apparent in late elementary. Like if we're still having issues around that, that's going to be looking really big now in a way that maybe it didn't when kids were younger or it just people were um, more accepting of it when kids were younger. And as they get older, that shines a little bit more brightly. I see that a big time in in late elementary and middle school um, because late elementary is when we start projects. So now we have to take this big project that's due, you know, two months later and we have to break it down into steps, right? And break it down into parts and we have to be able to not only chunk that out, but then we have to be able to look at a calendar and time manage that. When am I going to do what of these activities, right? And so then these, a lot of times kids will be like, you know, they're the like two nights before it's due. It's like, I have this project that's due. (laughs) I have to get it all done. And it was really like, you know, six week project. And with our, with our gifted kiddos, they're perfectionists. So they are going to want to do incredible work and detail around it and incredible work and detail that maybe isn't even necessary for the project, right? Because there's a lot of, I don't really know how to prioritize. I make everything. I, this is, this is a big thing I'm working on with several of my kids where they, they have some major anxiety because their homework load is really large. And it's not that their homework load is super large. It's that, that they do every single assignment at 150%. And they don't know how to say, oh, this is a five-point assignment and I'm only doing this because <laughs> that will get me what I need to for that assignment, right? They don't know how to bring that down a few notches. They want to do everything at A++ status, which can be really hindering for projects because then I tend to get stuck in you know, oh, I want to do this and then I want to do this. And, oh, wait a minute, maybe I should go research that thing, right? And they make it, they just grow it bigger and bigger and bigger. So being able to kind of scale that down, take teacher feedback and know that that were, I mean, I just had a kid this happened to, he was doing a history paper. And I mean, finally we had to be like, your teacher gave you feedback. All you're going to do is the feedback. Yeah, but now I want to add, we don't get to add anything. You only get to add the teacher feedback. Well, they had a competition and he got first place and now he's going to state with this paper, right? And so I was like, and I said, he goes, well, the judges gave us feedback. So I really wish I had more than this weekend to work on it because I'm like, you have a first place paper already. The judges gave you a little bit of feedback. It should not take more than an hour to do that feedback, right? But he's thinking his mind is so big because he doesn't realize that his, like him barely showing up is already at an A compared to other kids, you know, and he want, but that's part of, you know, being twice exceptional is I want to do a really good job. So having those harder projects tend to be really challenging because it layers on top of each other and setting that aside. I think task initiation is also a thing I see. And that is, I like to work with that on kids because it's interesting to see what it, what's the thing that holds them back from starting the task, right? And getting them to be thinking about their activities. You know, I, I do this and I use this example all the time. There are certain activities in my private practice that I have no problem doing. And there are other activities 
that I have a harder time with. And so writing reports and doing presentations, I will drag my feet, right? I will procrastinate, procrastinate. And I ended up doing a visual graphic organizer for myself and especially around presentations. And I was like, all of my presentations are going to have three themes, right? Three sections to the presentation. And so then as I get asked to do something, I just pull out that sheet and then I start thinking about ideas and I think about where does it pop into the three themes, right? I've identified my three themes and then it's easier to sit down so that I'm not thinking, oh, I should add this in and I should add that in. So getting kids to recognize, how do you like to work? Do you like to tackle your hard stuff first or do you, or do you like to do easy stuff just to kind of get in the flow of it and then tackle your hard stuff, right? And what does that, what does that look like for that task initiation? So that's another big one that kind of pops up in the late elementary. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Yeah, the task initiation, that's definitely something that we work on a lot here. So I totally I relate to most of what you're saying in terms of things that that come up here. But definitely, it's been really interesting to work on that kind of overwhelm at when something new is introduced. And yeah, one of my books is called Doable. And it's all about how to accomplish anything. So we're actually it's written for teen girls, but we go through some of the strategies here to learn how to break things down. And that has been really interesting to watch. Um, And so I get excited now about when I introduce a new school project that can seem really big, and just kind of now even noticing how the resistance isn't there in the same way and um, a more a, a willingness to kind of dive in in that and not feeling overwhelmed. It's been really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that is, 
you know, that's big. It's like, how do I do this? The other thing that I will see is how do I do things that I don't want to do? Right. Or there aren't, or, or, aren't um, appealing to me. Right. What are those tasks that I, and it's funny because I've had some high school kids the last couple of years. I remember one of my guys, he's like, well, I'm just waiting, you know, to like, like it. And I was like, Oh buddy, here's how this works. <laughs> like, there is always going to be a whole list of things that you have to do that you don't like to do, like forever, for the rest of your life. And he's like, what? Like, he really was under this impression that like, at some point in adulthood, you hit this switch and like, you like everything. And I was like, nope, nope, that's not how this works. <laughs> so it's like, how do I persevere through something that is more challenging for me? But I think what's nice about your example with Asher, which I love is, and what I say to school teams when I consult is, you know kids want to show up and do their best. So when they don't, there's a skill lacking, right? And once they get the skill down and once they start to understand that they have options, we'll see the behavior shift, right? Because at the end of the day, what keeps us regulated with our emotions, one is our ability to recognize them, but two, it's our ability to come up with solutions to obstacles. And our, a lot of times our kids don't have those solutions. They, they're, not, they're not great problem solvers, and so therefore they get stuck and they build up resistance and it comes through in behavior. And, you know, and so when I see that, you know, I always try to say to teams and parents, like that's our cue as adults that w- there's something that needs to be taught, right? Because if they could do it, they would. I mean, they would just engage in it. So they're not because they're stuck and they don't, you know, our kids don't always know how to ask for help, even though they've got these really high IQs and they're really smart kids. They're not good at being able to identify what the problem is and then asking for help. Or they see asking for help as weakness, right? They don't feel like they should have to ask for help because they know they're really smart. And so there's all of that kind of internal chatter that can be happening with them that holds them back from, from seeking out assistance in some ways that we would expect them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. If they would do better. If they could do it, if they would do it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I just had a client, you know, he was having a hard time in art and, you know, he's again, twice exceptional kiddo. And I was saying that to his mom, like, you know, he does, if he likes something and knows what to do, he's always jumps in. So if he's sitting in art and he's not doing anything and, you know, the teacher's email was like, well, he needs to ask for help. And it's like, except that, you know, he has autism and part of autism, you know, it hits our social domain of our brain and it hits the communication part of our brain. So it's going to be, that sounds really simple to ask for help, but that's hard for him. He doesn't know exactly how to do that. And generally with our twice exceptional kiddos, they have tried some of the things we've asked them to do and they have not been successful. And so that's, and so then they, and they're only going to try it once. And if they don't get what they think that first time, then they'll stop doing that strategy because they, the feedback was, I did, it didn't work for me. So we have to be mindful too, that if we're going to ask kids to do something different, that we need to make sure that they are, they access what they want through this new strategy, those first several times so that they sync that up, that this is an effective way to do this too. Um, otherwise they make their own conclusions, you know, and they go, nope, I did raise my hand that one time two months ago and the teacher didn't call on me. So right. I'm just going to keep blurting out because blurting out works, <laughs> you know, for me. <laughs> I, I can tell that we could talk about this for a very long time. Um, and we, we may have to do a, a part two just on executive functioning. I think it's such a relevant topic today. And, you know, as I mentioned, Jessica Leahy's book, The Gift of Failure. And, you know, there have been a lot of other books that um, there's How to Raise an Adult is out now. I mean, this is definitely something that, I think for good reason is on many parents' minds and definitely feels like 
what we, you know, parents raising differently wired kids, it's it's worth putting a lot of focus on this right now. So thank you for sharing all of that. Just great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so I will just so listeners know, um, I will be leaving um, on the show notes an email and phone number for Julie if you want to get in touch with her because she's working on her website, right? Yeah, you'll have a web- yeah, one of these yes, days. Yes. So I will have that in the show notes as well as some of the other resources that we mentioned during this. But thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. It's It's been such useful information. And again, it just feels like such a critical piece of what we can focus on to help our kids develop. So thank you so much for that insight. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For more information on all of the podcast episodes, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast. To access the show notes for this episode with information on how to connect with Julie directly, as well as links to all the resources we mentioned in our conversation, go to www.tiltparenting.com slash session five. And if you're liking what we're doing here in the podcast, we encourage you to subscribe over on iTunes, as well as leave an honest review if you have the time. That really helps us get more visibility so more parents can become aware of Tilt. Lastly, for more information on Tilt, the revolution for parents raising differently wired kids, and to sign up to be part of the community, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.